0: Lillian Ahling hated America. She hated everything about it. She hated the way it smelled. Smoky and oily. The air so dirty at times with all the cars and trucks and factories, it clawed at her throat. She hated the noise. The clatter and thrum of New York City that grated on her ears and set her teeth on edge. She hated how crowded it was. The way people rushed up against her on the street bumping her out of the way as if she didn't matter as if she weren't even there the people here were so rude so uncaring some people would later claim that it was the other way around and that Lillian had the sort of prickly personality where she'd snap at you just for looking at her the wrong way she worked as a servant and her employers treated her like well like a servant the work was backbreaking and demeaning, and she felt so tired all the time. Lillian hated the food, the taste of it all so alien to her that it made her want to retch at times. She hated English, the way it felt thick and clumsy on her tongue, nothing like the sweet poetry of her native language. She hated being so alone. So lost and alone it sometimes felt as if she were drowning. And all around her were a city full of strangers, gleefully watching her sink into darkness. She hated everything about this country she'd traveled so far to get to. And now there was only one thing she wanted more than anything. More than anything in the entire world. To go home. There's a lot about Lillian Alling that we don't know. We don't know where she was from originally, not exactly. Eastern Europe, that's for sure, but where exactly? We don't know. She might have been Polish, or Estonian, or maybe Russian. Her name might have been an anglicized version of Alejnik, or it wasn't. And we think she was 30 years old back in 1927 and that she emigrated from wherever she came from to the U.S. a couple of years earlier. Life was hard for her, we know that. Basic survival was a constant struggle, and she barely had enough money to feed herself, much less purchase a ticket to sail back to her homeland. Some stories say she might have had family that was relocated to a Russian gulag. Others say she was just desperately homesick, Whatever the circumstances were, Lillian eventually reached her breaking point and she decided she was going home no matter what. We know she began to frequent the New York Public Library, whereas other patrons asked for different kinds of reference material. Lillian only wanted one thing, maps, lots of maps. Every day she returned again and again, asking to see the maps. She'd trace her coarse hands over the pages, copying notes and features of the landscape on scraps of paper. In what is considered quite a feat of cartography for a total amateur, Lillian painstakingly came up with a route that ran through New York State all the way to the forests of Minnesota before veering north up into the Canadian prairies and from there through the mountains of British Columbia and then pushing on further north. The Alaskan Yukon looked particularly daunting, she knew this in advance, but she also knew that if she made it that far, then home, beautiful, beautiful home, was only a short distance further. She could make it, she felt certain she could make it, it's only when her fingers reached that narrow strip of blue at the edge of Alaska, that 50 mile stretch of frigid water called the Bering Strait, that she knew she'd eventually run into a problem. But if she could make it that far, and she knew in her heart that she could, then she surely could figure out a way to cross that narrow stretch of blue, so narrow that she could cover it on the map with her palm, stretching her fingers across to touch her ultimate goal. Although Lillian spoke English fluently, whenever people asked her what she was doing, she would only give the same terse response. I go to Siberia. So it went that on a bright spring day in 1927, Lillian Olling stood up from her table at the library, returned her maps to the desk, and left for the last time. She tucked her dark hair into her headscarf and drew her shawl up over her narrow shoulders. Then Lillian, this tiny wisp of a woman just under 5 feet tall and 100 pounds, with her notes and her meager supplies tucked into a tiny shoulder bag, began walking to Russia. I'm Nate Hale on the way through the woods to Grandma's house, and this is The Conspirators. Very little is recorded about Lillian's journey across the United States. We know that she made it all the way to Chicago on foot, then to St. Paul, and from there up to Winnipeg, and from there to Vancouver. We know these things, but not much else. In that respect, maybe Lillian had a point. Americans didn't seem to care enough to pay much attention to this strange, determined woman as she walked across the country and out of it. The next occasion when we know someone came into direct contact with Lillian, was when she was already up in the Yukon and nearly halfway to her ultimate goal. On September 10, 1927, Bill Blackstock was startled to hear a knock on the door of his cabin. He was stationed in a remote telegraph outpost in central British Columbia, along the Yukon telegraph line, and he never got visitors. And why would he? There was no other human around for as far as the eye could see. They kept the telegraph stations spaced out by about 50 kilometers each in order to maintain the more than 1,600 kilometers of telegraph line. He was stunned when he opened the door and saw a tiny woman dressed in rags standing there. Her brown skirt and tatters, her shirt dirty and torn. Her running shoes split open from wear. I go to Siberia, is all the woman who would tell him when he asked her where she came from. He allowed her in to warm herself, and while she stood there shivering and looking completely out of place, he sent a message to the police about her. A constable named George Wyman hiked the 33 kilometers from Hazleton out to the cabin. He didn't know what to make of Lillian. She was as thin as a skeleton, and all she had with her was an 18-inch iron bar she kept with her for protection and a tiny black satchel containing a half dozen sandwiches some tea, a comb, and a few other personal effects. It took her a long time before she would respond with anything other than, I go to Siberia. But eventually Constable Wyman got the woman's name and just enough information to realize to his amazement that she had walked all the way from New York. Constable Wyman tried to reason with the woman that she couldn't possibly continue her journey. Winter was almost here, and she was now headed toward an 8,000-foot mountain peak with no equipment and no warm clothing. To which all Lillian would tell him was the same maddening refrain, I go to Siberia. Constable Wyman phoned his sergeant in the town of Smithers further to the south to see what he should do. Charge her with vagrancy so we can hold her for her own good, came the sergeant's reply. Lillian was taken into custody and given the unusually heavy fine of $25 or two months in the Ocala Prison Farm in Vancouver. It turns out Lillian had $20 cash on her, which probably could have been used to cover her fine, but it never came up in court, and for two months she was sent to the prison farm, more for her own safety and well-being than anything. She served her sentence, minus 10 days that she got off for good behavior and then she was ready to get on her way again. By the time spring came around and the snow began melting off the mountain, Lillian was back on the trail. It's estimated she was walking between 50 to 65 kilometers each day. In June, she was back in the town of Smithers, and the police delayed her again, warning her that the next leg of her journey would be the most treacherous of all, that she'd have a tough time finding food between here and the Bering Strait. I eat anything, she said. Leaves, berries, grass. She begged them to allow her to go on. The local police reluctantly gave her the okay to continue, since they had no legal reason to keep detaining her anyway. They let her go under the condition that she promised to stop in at every cabin along the telegraph line. Lillian reluctantly agreed. Telegraph operators along the line were warned ahead of time to be on the lookout for Lillian. The cabins were all numbered, and when she reached cabin 8, her appearance alarmed the two men who ran the telegraph there. Their names were Jim Christie and Charlie Jans. It was obvious that the rugged terrain was taking its toll on Lillian. Her face was swollen and pockmarked with insect bites. Her clothes and shoes were disintegrating on her tiny frame. She appeared half delirious from starvation. Christie and Jans fed Lillian and allowed her to rest up for three days. Then the tiny woman with the fierce spirit told them she was properly rested up to keep moving on. Before she left, the men gave her two gifts, a new kerchief to replace her tattered shawl and Jim Christie's prized black and white dog, Bruno. Lillian was delighted with Bruno, and she thanked the men profusely before heading back out on the trail. Christie volunteered to escort Lillian along the 8,000-foot summit path to the next cabin up the line. Further ahead, a man named Drysdale, Scott Ogilvie, set out from Cabin 10 to rendezvous with them at Cabin 9, but he never got there. When Ogilvie never showed up at Cabin 9, his colleague, Cyril Tooley, met with Jim Christie and the two men went looking for him. They found his body face down near a riverbank. Somehow he'd fallen into the water and got swept away. When Jim Christie broke the news to Lillian, her dark eyes filled with tears. It was the first time she showed any emotion other than steely determination. Later, so the story goes, after they buried Ogilvy in a clearing near Echo Lake, Lillian visited the man's grave. There, she laid a handful of wildflowers at the foot of the grave and said a silent prayer before turning away and heading back on her path. At least that's one version of the story. There's another version that paints Lillian in a much less flattering light. Some people say the story about Lillian and the wildflowers is a bunch of bunk, and that instead, upon hearing about Ogilvy's death, she shrugged it off. And told Jim Christie that the man was an idiot for trying to help her. To be honest, from what little we know of Lillian's personality, the latter story doesn't seem all that far-fetched. At some point along her journey, Bruno the dog drowned. When Lillian arrived in the town of Atlin near the British Columbian Yukon border, she brought Bruno's body with her. She'd attempted to preserve the dog's hide, stuffing it with grass. When someone in Atlanta asked her why she was carrying the stuffed dog with her, she snapped at him that Bruno was her only friend. And where she went, he would go, forever after. By October 1928, roughly 20 months after she'd first set out from New York, Lillian reached Dawson City in the Yukon. There she spent the winter working as a waitress, living alone and using her savings to repair a small rowboat she bought. She was a mystery and a curiosity to the people of Dawson City, but Lillian went out of her way to avoid forming any personal relationships with anyone. By spring, she was back on her way. She brought the boat with her, and she used it to cross rivers and other waterways when need be. People attempted to help her whenever she allowed it, that is. Lillian was something unique, a bit of the unexpected in this harsh wilderness. This strange, silent woman wearing a pair of men's mismatched shoes. It was apparent to everyone who helped her get the boat in the water. The woman didn't have any experience with boats of any sort. Nor did she seem to have a clear understanding of how to row one. Yet somehow, she kept going. In spring of 1929, Lillian loaded her little rowboat with supplies and set off down the mighty Yukon River. Her destination, the Arctic. She still had another 2,600 kilometers to go before she reached the Bering Strait. When she reached the mouth of the river, she abandoned her boat on the beach and continued overland from there. A few months later, some Eskimos reported seeing the bizarre sight of a tiny white woman dragging a two-wheeled wooden cart containing a dead dog carcass toward the strait. That's the last confirmed sighting anyone had of Lillian. After that, all we have is rumor and conjecture. No one knows for certain if Lillian ever reached the Bering Strait, nor what happened to her next after that. In the years that followed, Lillian's story gained a level of fame that would have shocked even her. Many articles were written about her, as well as a fictional novel and even an opera. Many writers tried retracing her steps to find out what happened to her, but there are only a couple that may have succeeded. One of them was a writer from California named Arthur Elmore, who had been stationed in Manchuria during the waning days of World War II. There, he met and befriended a Russian soldier. The two remained friends, and in 1965 the soldier invited Elmore to visit him at his home in Yakutsk. There, the soldier told him a very strange story. He said back in 1930, when he was about 15 years old, he lived in a small Soviet town named Providenya, near the edge of the Bering Strait, about 190 kilometers from Alaska on the other side. Late one afternoon while he was running an errand for his mother near the waterfront, he saw a crowd gathered. A number of soldiers and other official-looking men were present, and they were questioning a woman and three Eskimo men. Elmore's friend went over to see what was going on. The woman was dressed strangely, in tattered clothing that looked American, or maybe European, and she had just climbed out of a deerskin boat that still bobbed in the water behind her. When the woman reached shore, she went to her knees and kissed the ground. She told the official she had come from America where she had no friends, and had been unable to make a living, and that she had walked a long way to get here. The officials led the woman and the Eskimos away, and the young man never saw them again. Did Lillian make it? If the story can be believed, then it's certainly her. But that second-hand story is the only account that Lillian ever reached Russia. No official records have ever been located to corroborate the tale. In 2012, a writer and outdoorsman named Lawrence Millman attempted to follow Lillian's trail through the Yukon as much as possible to see if it could actually be done. Millman is an experienced hiker and he was surprised at how difficult the journey turned out to be. Every step of the way along the telegraph trail he found himself constantly attacked by swarms of horseflies and mosquitoes. Much of his path was blocked by impenetrable undergrowth and devil's club, a plant covered with painful clawed spines After five uncomfortable days, Millman finally gave up. He continued tracing her journey, but he was no longer hiking her path. He met a few elderly people in towns and villages along the way who actually met Lillian, and who confirmed that she had come passing through. But the further along he got, the more Millman began to run into the same dead ends with Lillian's story that other writers before him had encountered. He knew the story by Arthur Elmore about the mystery woman and the Eskimos. But by now, Arthur Elmore was long dead, and that was where the story ended. That is until by chance Lawrence Millman got a job as a guest lecturer on a cruise ship that took him north to Siberia. One of the ports the ship docked in was a little town called Providenia, the very same town Arthur Elmore's Russian friend claimed he'd come from. One afternoon, Millman looked around town, hoping to find some elderly resident who might remember the strange woman who reached their shores, but to no avail. He did eventually find his way to a small, unkempt cemetery, and there he found a gravestone that hadn't been tended in many years. Cleared away the lichen and weeds that had overgrown the stone to read the words etched on it. There was a name, Lilia Yvovna Alling, and there, below the name were the Russian words, Puti. Here, the journey ends. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much to all my loyal listeners for following me on my own journey and trying to make this the very best podcast that I can. If you're willing to follow along with me a little longer, I invite you to let your friends and family know about the show, and to please subscribe and leave me a positive review on iTunes. It really does help me out. You can also always listen to the show on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and of course our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and happy trails.